Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 71. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Guido Hulsman. Guido is Professor of Economics at the Université d'Angers in France. He's also a Senior Fellow of the Mises Institute, where he holds the 2018 Peterson Luddy Chair. He's the author of Mises, The Last Night of Liberalism and The Ethics of Money Production, as well as many other books and publications that can be found via his website. Welcome to the show, Guido. Yes, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. And I think Tim has got a list of questions that he wants to ask you, and I don't want to stand in the way of those questions. So let's let's get straight into it. So Guido, first of all, have, have you got a, a spare couple of days for us? <laughs> Let's start with a spare couple of minutes. Okay, so let's uh, let's kick off. Um, I mean, we know each other from, I think, through a mutual friend initially, a gentleman by the name of Tony Deedon in Zurich, uh, who's yes. probably uh, behind, behind uh, introducing us personally. Um, and it would be fair to say that uh, that Tony is a, an advocate of the so-called Austrian school. Um, I, I, although I didn't know the Austrian school when I set out in my career, I, I think I'm a little bit more familiar with it now. How would you so sum up the so-called Austrian School of Economics? Well, uh, the Austrian School, I mean, from from an academic point of view, I would say it's uh, it's a, a continuation in modern economics of the realist philosoph- philosophical tradition. All right. So in philosophy, you have this old uh, debate, this old uh, disagreement about the question whether there are any universals. Right. Then it's, it's a very old dispute that goes back to the Greeks and then in in, in the Middle Ages. So the the idea the, the question was whether uh, there are um, uh, causal connections or, or concepts, more generally speaking, that uh, apply at all times and places. Okay, and uh, on this ground, so the people who, uh, who believe that this is true, uh, they are called the realists, and the people who believe that, that there is no such thing that holds true at all times and all places, but all things that we can know are only related to particular historical conditions of time and place and therefore have to be uh, identified again and again anew. And all general concepts that we could ever use are uh, just some sort of um, temporary summaries of what we currently know and currently think. Well, these people are called the nominalists and the positivists. And um, in the 20th century, the, the nominalists have hijacked economics, not only economics, but economics in particular, and the uh, only guys left standing on the in the realist camp, well, there might be a few others, but the most important group left standing is are the, are the Austrians. So the Austrians think that uh, yeah, there is such a thing as economic laws, right? So there are causal connections that hold true at all times and all places. If you increase the money supply, well, then the price level will tend to increase at all times and all places. It's not just true today in France or in, in the UK, but at, at all in all countries and all. Uh, at all times. So that's the Austrian position. That's really what makes them uh, particular. And the others, uh, uh, so they don't believe in this, this kind of thing. And there's a second thing that also came uh, that has complicated things on top of this, uh, namely the idea that there are constant quantitative relationships. Now, that's, that's not at all the same thing, but uh, that's what the, the most other economists are looking for. Right? They, so they, they think that in, in the social field, uh, and in the economy, the, if there are uh, 
uh, laws of any kind, then they should be of the quantitative sort, uh, such as the law of gravity and so on that we know from uh, from physics. So there should be a quanti constant quantitative relationship between different variables that we are interested in. Uh, and again, like one example might be uh, the, the money uh, stock, the quantity of money on the one hand, and the price level of the, uh, on the other hand. Now the Austrians don't believe that there is such a, a constant quantitative relationship because the money supply is just one among other uh, factors that influences the price level. And it does influence the price level only through the subjective values of um, uh, all, all market participants. So market participants, um, uh, well, they are, they are individuals that uh, endowed with the faculty to choose, and they might uh, uh, change their opinions. They might change their values might change from one moment to the other, and of course they're different one from one individual to another. So that makes that there can be no such thing as a constant quantitative relationship. The only thing that is constant is indeed that there is a relationship between the money supply and the price level. They're positively related, but the, there is no exact quantitative relationship. I'm, I'm afraid that <laughs> was quite a long bit, but you asked me, right? No, it's, no you're <laughs> absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm to blame. I'm to blame here. Well, what was your personal journey? How did you get, how do you discover the Austrian school yourself? I started off as an engineer, so I studied mechanical engineering and I took some uh, uh, economics classes, some, some management classes. The idea was to train for a career in industrial management. But then I fell in love with economics and uh, the kind of economics that I've, the first attracted me was uh, mainstream economics or so Keynesian macroeconomics. It's a very appealing uh, intellectual approach. It's very flattering to young people who just don't know anything but want to rule the world. <laughs> You have this, this great model and it tells you, oh, you just got to push on this button and this will happen. And if you pull on this lever, then something else will happen. But to, to that, happen just, just, sorry to interrupt, but just to that point, so I think you've got to the heart of my own skepticism with relation to Keynesian economics. I think Keynes said or wrote around the time that the Great Depression started that we have erred in the management of a great machine. Um, yes. And I would, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I would argue that the entire... That, that is the entire problem with Keynesian economics, that the whole metaphor is incorrect because the economy is not a machine, the economy is us. Exactly. Right. And that, of course, this, this goes back to the Enlightenment, right? So the French Enlightenment. Uh, you have a guy like uh, De La Métrie, and he wrote this book, uh, Man Machine. Mm. Right? Uh, you have it really there. Uh, all the Enlightenment people, they had this conviction that really most people were just some sort of rabbits. There, there are very few, very uh, enlightened people. Uh, Voltaire said this, something to this effect, uh, only one, one of two percent, probably uh, rather one percent of um, human beings who are truly human beings and all others are just some sort of rabbits. And so you can program them as, as you wish and uh, you just uh, need to uh, fix the laws in this and that way. Uh, you, you really have a program of social engineering. And, and Keynes was just continuing this. He did it with, um, with economics, expressed it in economic language. And there are other guys who are doing the same thing with mathematical uh, uh, language, right? So you have mathematical models, but the, the fundamental idea is always the same, right? So uh, if we think this is wrong, then, why, does, why is it taken... Why hasn't anybody else kind of picked up on it and said, well, hang on a minute, Keynesian economics doesn't really work? as it should. Austrian e economics does. And of course, there are many Austrian economics um, proponents out there who are trying to fight their corner. 
But if if it is so obviously correct, why hasn't the kind of why, what what's what I want to get trying to get to is what what's preventing this wider pickup in economics in the universities across the world? Well, I mean, I've only not just one uh, one factor that uh, comes here to play. There are uh, several reasons. One, for example, is that uh, many people, academics in particular, just like to play. Yeah, I, I think it's a very powerful motivation. Many many economists like to play with models with numbers, and so they just like doing this. And you so can't do, and you can't do that with Austrian economics, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could. I mean, there are people trying to, uh, to construct Austrian-inspired models and so on. But I mean, this is again, this is just play, playing, right? Um, but I think a more powerful reason why um, uh, th this keeps up for so long is just because it suits the people who are in power. Why? Why does it? Why does it? Is, is that because you, you think there's a natural tendency towards inflation, as in Keynesian or neo-Keynesian economics? No, it's it's the other way around. I think that uh, people in power are interested in spending a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. So they they're using uh, they they they're looking for uh, justifications of their own activities. Ah. They they want to know why is it good what they are doing. They want to do anyway. Let's see. And. Uh, so why they should tax more and why they should maybe put into place a monetary system that allows for the uh, at will uh, li at libitum creation of money and uh, here comes Keynes and he's not the only one who's one of them and explains them uh, why this is a good thing so therefore I think they, they hire people of this sort um, that are constructive <laughs> right <laughs> So, uh, so if you I, I got this comment so often, right? But when you apply, for, you make up a research, you apply for a research grant, and so on, and say, okay, so where is this leading us? Right? What, what kind of policy can we uh, justify with this, or help help uh, ameliorate, and so on? If you say, well, I probably this doesn't justify anything. It, uh, if it goes anywhere, it probably rather uh, leads to criticizing the whole point of intervening in the first place. Well, then they're no longer interested in funding it. Because you're not being constructive. So this this is this is a tricky question. But if you had the power to do whatever you want to change the economic landscape in terms of how it's taught, how governments make decisions, what would you do? Well, I would probably get the government out of education. It's just completely out of it. All education. Yeah. Yeah. So how Both. would that work then? How would it? How would schooling be how would our kids be taught then well uh, i mean uh, with, uh, how uh, were kids being taught before the 19th century right uh, government um, uh, intervent uh, so, so meddling with with education really started only in the 19th century before you had um, uh, either private associations that the churches in particular were taking care of this uh, so it was not needed that anybody uh, tax-funded tax education, either, either elementary education, middle schools, high schools, or the university, and so on. It was just being handled anyway. And it's true. Uh, so this gives great, uh, great latitude and greater responsibilities to parents, right? Not all, all parents will lead their children to high school or lead them to the, to the university and so on. But um, yeah, I think that that would probably be the, uh, a, a better situation than we have at present. In any case, people would have much uh, sounder ideas as far as all uh, social and political questions are concerned, because they would not be systematically biased. 
the system that we have right now, I don't know exactly how it is in the UK, but I see this here in France and, and in Germany is uh, the, the educational level diminishes uh, every year. And we've observed this for the past uh, 40 or 50 years. I mean, really, the, the level of education actually diminishes. So they're doing a very lousy job as, the, as far as the quality of education is concerned. And if you listen to the education bureaucracy in France, the main concern is not really uh, the level of academic achievement, it's uh, equality. So they want to have a, a student populace that is equal. So they do want to prevent that some people uh, get ahead of others and get a head start when it comes to professional life and so on. So they want everybody to be on the same, on the, on the, on the start line at the age of 18 or 19 or whenever they're, they're leaving school. That, that's their main objective. It's not to, to teach anybody or help, help people. They just want to make them equal. That's a big problem. And how would you tackle the economy? Uh, the, the economy in general? Yes. It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't mess around with small issues here on the podcast. Uh, you know. But I, I think that even people today who are not libertarians, right, they, they would agree that clearly, I mean, we have too much of government meddling, too much of government intervention everywhere. The, the results are very bad uh, if you look at, uh, at it from the point of view of the, the actual performance of the systems into which they intervene, right? Academic performance in education, and then uh, economic growth, um, uh, income and wealth distribution, as, as far as the economy is concerned, all these things, they, they always grew up, right? So you, um, you, you need less of this. The problem, if you want to turn it back, is it, it's, it's really, it's, it's much more difficult than adding a little bit of it to the, the existing system, the existing system, right? So if you uh, have the current system and you have even more government involvement in education and so on, a little more, that's not a big uh, shakeup for the whole system. It just makes it, uh, it paralyzes it, it, it a little bit more. Uh, if you increase taxes a little bit more, um, that, that's not a big shakeup. So it just makes it marginally more difficult. But if you try to turn it back, um, we, we get a problem, especially in the economy, we get a big problem because the economy is so fragile because it is so it has become a debt uh, junkie, right, under the influence of uh, monetary interventions in particular. So if you uh, scale back a little bit of this, uh, you fragilize and uh, you might create the bankruptcy of uh, certain elements of the economy, and this might entail snowballing effects that have the potential of drawing down all the rest of the economy with it. Right? So it's not easy to, to go the other direction. Therefore, I tend to think that as a rule, uh, you should think big as you guys are doing, apparently, because you're raising <laughs> the big questions, right? And you, sh uh, you should not be afraid of uh, considering a complete overhaul, just cutting it back from 100 to zero, something like this. I mean, certainly in the case of, of money and uh, government spending in the economy and so on is concerned, I think that's uh, definitely a really realistic option. Do you think that with the amount of debt now in the in the global um, capital monetary system that we, we're going to end up getting some kind of a reset in the future in, an, in a way that may not be as orderly as some might believe? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. Right? I've, I've always... Um, uh, thought uh, for a very, very long time that actually we have, uh, we have three options right? Uh, from the, the current situation. We had it also 20 years ago. Um, either we allow 
the, gov uh, the government is no longer intervening, it doesn't try to bail out anybody and so on. Then we get a crisis mm. and then we get actually a deflationary meltdown mm. of the whole system. That's the first option. The second option is um, you're just trying to inflate your way out of this. And of course, that's not really a solution, but it will just wreck it will just wreck the economy because you're sooner or later you're getting very fast into hyperinflation here. Uh, and the third option is, and of, very often it's neglected, uh, the third option is just to layer more and more regulations on the economy to, to inflate, but at the same time, uh, through uh, interventions or uh, for regulation, to try to prevent that the inflationary policy leads to uh, higher prices, leads to greater redistribution, and so on. And so you're walking away into a completely regulated, in fact, into a totalitarian socialist system. And right now, I, I think we are moving uh, on uh, a path of this way, of this sort. Now, that's that's not very. I, I'm sorry, this is not very, <laughs> very, very positive and in a bright outlook. But I mean, we definitely need to take this into consideration. I mean, we cannot out of the out of the present situation. It's very fragile, as we all know. So it's very unstable. It cannot. We cannot remain there. Uh, so where will we be moving? Uh, I think they. Uh, the people who are uh, running monetary policy or running the state, uh, their main objective is to stay at their helmet, to keep running the country and hand it over to their friends uh, when they self, uh, themselves step aside. So uh, they will not consider the deflationary meltdown solution. Mm. Um, they want to avoid hyperinflation. So the, for them, the, 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 the way to go is uh, more inflation and at the same time, regulation uh, again have a greater control over, over the economy so right. so i was okay, one just of, what, one, yeah it's more concrete right to make this more concrete, it's not just regulation if you think of uh, something like um uh the plunge protection team do they exist yeah i mean uh, they, they i mean uh, the central bank doesn't the central bank doesn't call it the plunge protection team this is the jargon right so yeah uh, yeah they, they call it uh, um, uh, the Federal, Federal Open Market Committee. The, the market desk of the New York Fed, right? <laughs> Something like that. That's but all they call it. Do you think they're actually buying stocks, though, as well? Yes, yeah, I yes. do. Okay. I mean, yes, of course I do. Ah. And there has been evidence of this, right? I mean, we know the Swiss National Bank has done that, don't we? So that's, that's, not, that's a matter of public knowledge. Yes, and Swiss because they're upfront about it. But there, there were stories already a few years back already uh, that popped out. It was not the American uh, any American firm that broke it, but some uh, foreign uh, newspaper, and they had gained access to uh, whatever information about the, the practices of the uh, federal stuff. I mean, the way they are doing it is uh, the, well, the Americans may not buy American stock; they may not buy shares of. American companies, but they might buy shares of foreign companies. That, but why would they do that? Well, already it, it might be just uh, the, the way to go as a quid pro, uh, pro quo, right? Oh, the I Swiss see. are buying see. shares of, of, of uh, American companies and uh, the Americans are buying shares of, of uh, Swiss companies. Right, right. So this way, each of them uh, respects the law and still collectively they're circumventing the law. So coming back to your, your point about deflation, which is something that I, I was considering to be the most likely for initial outcome um, before we get some kind of inflationary bust and perhaps a collapse, complete collapse in currencies, which I'd love to get your view on 
in just a second. But so I can get my head round how how does a deflationary environment unfold when there is so much QE going on, there is so much intervention going on, there's so much debasement of these currencies, and at the same time, I mean, we're seeing currency, currencies in inverted commas like gold move up. Um, how, how could these? How could this actually mechanically happen? Do you think? Well, I mean, it would happen if the um, yeah, the central bank does no longer increase uh, the money supply, so its own money yeah. supply, right? Or if it doesn't increase it enough, so that people who have uh, been counting on the stronger increases are, are, are left in the, in the cold, as, as we've seen last week, right, with the liquidity issues on, on uh, in New York. Um, so if something of this, this can spill over, right? And that's also the reason why the central bank stepped very vigorously in and prevented that uh, interest rates would rise further and that panic would spread, uh, spread and so on. So under these circumstances, there's no deflationary meltdown, right? But of course, by solving a problem springing from debt with more credits, you do not provide a, a, a true solution yes. to the problems, right? I mean, this is uh, something that, that most people have understood, that we are in a very paradoxical uh, situation. That we're trying to uh, solve problems springing from debt with ever more credit. This is, of course, absurd because we are just reproducing uh, the problems that we had in the past on a higher level. Right? It's almost exactly as Marx put it, right? so the capitalist system reproduces its own problems on an ever larger scale. Which is wrong because it's not the, it's not the capitalist system, it's the interventionist, right? it's the status system that is re reproducing its own problems on an ever higher scale. So it's difficult to, I guess, find the point when the bubble actually bursts because we get we it's been blowing bigger and bigger and bigger and and yeah. people might say well look it's working right the stock market is up it was we had a crisis in 2007 2008 the market mm -hmm. is up uh, mm -hmm. interest rates uh, are low but there's still you know there's there's some very small move down you could make i'd argue that yeah. we're at a point where they're meaningless but um yeah. but it, it seems to have inverted commas worked how much longer can this work for before it all goes wrong in your view is is there can we look at history to find a way to predict how close we are to the end of this uh we're very much in uncharted uh waters here i mean i think it can work for a long time it depends on the conditions it always depends also on how people uh, act what, what people will do uh, it can act uh, because we have uh, very smart uh, managers at the top of central banks who know the business, who know uh, uh, what they can do, what they cannot do. Uh, we have a generation of politicians who have enough economic instruction so that they know what they cannot exaggerate it with helping themselves through the uh, printing press. Right. So there's some minimal discipline that, that's there. And they, they do not want to, uh, to use really the printing price right now to gain revenue. We're not at that point. Uh, once you're at that point, then you're close to hyperinflation, uh, close to a collapse. Right? That was, for example, the situation in, in, uh, in Germany after World War One, and when they had huge public de uh, deficits uh, for five years in a row. I mean, it's really huge. 
and uh, eventually well, they just needed the printing press to, to get the revenue because the, the taxes were no longer sufficient. Uh, now, even though uh, President Trump has, has made some uh, very uh, considerable efforts in that direction, it's a huge deficit in the US as well, but they're nowhere near the situation in which they would truly need the, uh, need the, the printing press, right? Right now they can help themselves out of the credit market. So as long as uh, these conditions uh, prevail, uh, I don't think we are anywhere near uh, 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 a short run finish, uh, stop, stop of the, the system. So it can last for a longer time. But it can't last indefinitely? Yeah, indefinitely, I don't know. Definitely, it's, it's difficult to say. Well, Keynes would say in the long run, we're all dead, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing lasts indefinitely, right? Nothing lasts indefinitely. Yeah. It's certainly not something for the next three or f- uh, five years, and I, I don't think it's uh, something that we, an end that we should expect within the next 10 years or something like this. But I could be wrong. Um, I mean, one thing that uh, creates, I mean, because the whole, um, the whole system creates problems of its own, and the problems themselves might get out of hand. It, it's not sufficient that the uh, uh, current uh, crop of, of politicians and central banks and so on, that they're knowledgeable and that they're relatively disciplined, so they don't exaggerate the practice of helping themselves with the printing press. Uh, because there are other problems that are resulting from the current monetary system uh, that we have. Um, the most important uh, ones being that is the lack of responsibility or the de-responsibilization right, of, the, uh, of the financial markets on the one hand, uh, and the, the consumption of capital on the on the other hand. Okay, let me. The, the first one is probably is, is less needed that I explain this uh, to you and uh, to, to your audience because you're probably aware of this, right? That simply, uh, if you, if you know that you have some, uh, something like a backstop that comes through the printing press, you have a central bank behind you, and the central bank uh, pursues the mission of uh, stabilizing the financial market. Well. And it does so with the printing press, then this amounts to a socialization of a part of your risk. So as a consequence, uh, risk taking as a rule is always on, right? So you get very uh, flamboyant evaluation of, of, of shares and of other asset classes and so on. And you get uh, uh, equally uh, enthusiastic use of, uh, of, of leverage, right? To, to get the results that you need, at least in the short run, right? So the economy is moving on a, uh, on a dead path, right? And this makes the whole thing very fragile and uh, infects some, some sort of a border cake, right? So we are with this connection, I believe is, is quite obvious. Uh, the other uh, um, problem that I mentioned is capital consumption. Now that that's less, uh, uh, less obvious probably. And what I have here in mind is that thanks to the printing press, you, you no longer, you destroy part of the incentives that push people to save. Of course, you reduce the incentives to become uh, self-reliant and so on, you go through debt and so on, but especially you reduce the incentives to save. As a consequence, you are uh, diminishing the capital base, right? Now, in real terms of the economy. Uh, now, the question is, how strong is this effect? If you look at the official figures, you might think, well, it, it cannot be that strong because we still have an increase of um, capital invested in real terms. Well, I looked at the figures as well, and it's true. So this is uh, this is the impression that you get. But uh, then, of course, we also know that governments uh, try to manipulate the figures themselves, and especially in, in this case, the, the price inflation rate. Uh, you, you are probably aware of um, the work of uh, John Williamson. Shadow stats. Yeah. Shadow stats, yeah. right. 
So I've been uh, following this for 15 years or something like that. It was fascinating uh, when, when I saw this. Of course, what he's doing is just providing estimates, right? There's no, because you do not have the raw data. He's just, out of his own experience, he's just estimating the deviation between uh, the calculated inflation rates with the, the current methodology and the uh, inflation price inflation rate that would be calculated with the prevailing uh, methods in the, in the in the 1980s and so it comes up with uh, differentials of uh, about 7% i think right right now right 7 7 9% something it's 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 enormous it's just mind boggling so i ran through uh, uh, macroeconomic statistics information about um, capital investments and so on in the light of his figures and my conclusion was that if you if, if Williamson is right, then we have been consuming capital uh, constantly since uh, the mid-1980s, something like this. And even if he is not uh, entirely right, but if it's only half right, then probably we've been consuming capital for the past 20 years. In the defense of the Fed, though, if you take inflation and strip out inflation, the inflation X inflation rate is remarkably uh, static over time. <laughs> <laughs> I got, in case you're interested, I got that off a, a satirical US website called Long or Short Capital. Well, you, I thought it was rather good, the inflation X inflation rate. Well, you, you, you knew you were being set up for something as soon as Tim said to be fair to the, to the Fed. It's like, That's true. It was, a bit, of a, it was a bit of a guy. So, right. And that is, of course, that, that creates a big problem, not for the, 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 the people who are working close to the printing press, so people working on financial markets, people working in the government and so on. Uh, but it's a problem for the economy as a whole, especially for the uh, the weaker parts of the economy, right? Working class people, uh, people uh, in jobs very much removed from uh, financial markets, from the banking industry and so on. And we should expect there, uh, we should uh, expect to observe an impoverishment there. And indeed, I think there are many indicators that that's all. Do you think that's, do you think that's been a factor in the, the, the trends that have become manifest through, in the UK context, Brexit, and in the US context, the election of Donald Trump. The fact that you have a, yeah. an, un, yeah. say an economic underclass that's basically yeah. got nowhere over the last 20 to 30 years, and he's just yes. frankly yeah. feeling pissed off about it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I see, I've uh, just, just personally, right? So my, my father-in-law is a, is a, is, is a working class uh, person, so he has been a, a, a worker all of his life. Um, and he has been able to, so in France, um, uh, in, the, in the 1970s, he has, he's bought a house, he's uh, been going with his family to a vacation. I mean, they, they've been always very disciplined and so on. Um, but he could afford all these things, right? He could send their children uh, to school, could send them to, to the university, he was paying for all of this. I mean, how many working class people can do this today? It's just, I mean, you need to be uh, top notch in your in your activity. You need to be extremely well paid uh, as, as a, in a working class occupation in order to do this. So mo most people cannot, and he was kind of average at, at the time. So I think uh, if if you look at these things even on an anecdotal basis and, and see what's the, what are the living conditions in real terms, I mean, how did people live? What did they consume? What kind of food did they bring on the table? Uh, where did they travel and, and so on? And in, in, in light of this, I mean, clearly there are many signs of impoverishment. Right? And on top of this comes, of course, uh, I mean, we, we have both, right? I think we have uh, capital destruction. Uh, so there is an aggregate impoverishment. And at the same time, we have this redistribution. 
right? So they're out of the fewer resources in comparison to whatever, 20, 30 years ago, it's a greater chunk goes to um, people are very well connected and uh, are uh, so, so, so the upper classes, and that is, of course, that's that's explosive mm. uh, uh, for a society. Well, you, you mentioned the, the varying degrees of wealth within a society. If we look at, uh, let's say, a selection of different countries, uh, how how sustainable do you think the the euro currency system is, given that you've got clearly delineations of wealth between the the core and the periphery, and and that's manifest in in youth unemployment rates. Well, the, the funny thing is, in the periphery, you have—I mean, everywhere, everywhere you have the, the, the same type of problem, right? Namely, aggregate impoverishment and greater uh, inequality, right? But in the periphery, these problems are stronger, mm. right? <laughs> Especially the redistribution problem. Right? The, if, if you look at people uh, in, in Italy, the upper class in Italy, there um, is a greater difference between them and the lower classes than in Germany. Mm. Or in or in Spain or in Portugal and, and so on. So probably, right? The the problems uh, should explode in in the periphery, and they have been exploding in the periphery. If you look at Greece, um, Spain is very particular. I'm very admirative of, of Spain, right? The, how they got through this crisis. There is a lot of uh, cohesion within the society, right? It's, it's, it's definitely not something they went through things that the the Greeks, for instance, did not would not tolerate. The same, so you could say the same for for the Irish as well. The Irish have been quite stoic by comparison. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. So there is a lot of um, social capital, uh, emotional capital, moral capital is still there, but uh, you can uh, destroy and consume this kind of capital as well, mm -hmm. right? So we're we're working our way. There's one layer of capital right there. There, I think the, the evidence is, is strong. It's not conclusive, I admit this, but the evidence is strong that there has been capital consumption uh, as compared to 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and then there are other forms of, of capital, social capital, moral capital, uh, emotional capital, uh, which are all cultural achievements have been, uh, in a way, are the basis of, of our current uh, economic and social order. And of course, we are, we are destroying them. We are nagging at them as well. And that's where I see the true problems in the long run. I'm not that, uh, I mean, I'm an economist, so professionally, of course, I'm, I'm interested in material things, as you are as well, right? Because you're working on the financial markets. But I'm much more concerned in the long run about the destruction of uh, yeah, the moral foundations mm. of, of our societies. Given that the situation that you've described is not going to change anytime soon. How do you think this is going to play out in the Eurozone going forward? How will it be resolved? A breakup of the Euro? Um, and if so, which country do you think would leave first? Well, I, I think, I mean, you see it in the case of Greece, right? When, when uh, the, the socialist government came to power in the wake of 2009 to 2011, 2010, 2010, 2011, actually, uh, so they got elected because they promised to get Greece out of the Eurozone. Yeah. Okay. And they didn't. Uh, this, uh, they got elected, but they didn't take Greece out of the Eurozone. P politicians lying. <laughs> <laughs> well, surprise, surprise. But uh, I, I think they were honest when they uh, were uh, running uh, to be elected. And then actually they did a lot of learning and they, they thoroughly considered what their options were. And the truth is, 
uh, Greece dropping out of the Eurozone would have suffered an enormous uh, drawback in, in real incomes. Okay. I mean, there's, 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 there's no comparison. I don't say it wouldn't have been good for the country in the long run. Yes, I do believe it would have been good for the country in the long run, especially uh, if you're no longer on the uh, monetary lifeline, right, on the hard lung machine, uh, then, well, actually, your own economy starts developing again. Actually, the production becomes more important than just spending, uh, spending money, uh, especially spending other people's money. So that's uh, certainly a good thing. But uh, that they would not have survived this politically. And actually, most of the voters probably would not have liked it anyway. Right? Uh, speaking of Greece, right, Aristotle once said that uh, actually most people were, were uh, born to be slaves. <laughs> slave, right? People, actually, most people, they, 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 they don't mind that other people are telling them what they should do and how they should live and so on, as long as they have a nice cozy house and uh, a car and, and they have enough to eat and so on. They, they have to perfectly... Was, was, fine it, with it. was it Aristotle that said that the unexamined life is not worth living? <laughs> yeah well i mean for, for him yes of course that that was the the, the only uh, life worthy of a man yeah and right? as, as, as a rational being so what is our objective as a rational being it's uh, he would say was to uh, to contemplate those things that they are eternal right uh but that is not the opinion of, of most people. So I think, uh, so coming back on the Eurozone, therefore, I, uh, I think even though the problems are greatest than the periphery, uh, the costs of moving away from the Eurozone are also greatest than the periphery. Germany could drop oh. out of the Eurozone, it would be hard, but Germany would, would get along. I think actually it would be a great relief for Germany because right now, uh, uh, contrary to what uh, politicians in Germany always profess maybe that Germany is the greatest beneficiary of the Eurozone. I think we're actually uh, um, the guys who are funding this, right, mm. in, in real terms. Because mm. all we, what we're exporting are real goods and services and what we're getting paid with are promises. But what, right? you're say, what you're saying in these peripheral countries is that the political situations are changing because it's clearly not working. Otherwise, you wouldn't have got a Greek government elected on the basis of leaving the euro same yeah, in, same yeah. in, in italy so yeah. i take your point that that it would be bad if people left but it's got to be pretty bad if they're campaigning for governments to actually get them out so the, it, that's not going to get any better really it can only i can only see it getting worse and these differentials becoming bigger Yes, of uh, course. Yeah, the problems, the, the problems will accelerate. But you see that and what it boils down to is, is the following, right? I mean, uh, industry and eventually any sort of uh, productive activity that is not related to tourism. Uh, so welcoming British, uh, Dutch, Austrian and German tourists will just wither away. That's what it boils down to. So these countries, then, if, if they stay in the Eurozone, they will have this kind of fate. It's, it's the writing on the wall. But if, if they if if they leave and they go back to a new currency, say the new drachma or whatever it might be, yes. yeah. although there's no provision for that, ultimately we yeah. know they just create a new currency, mm. then that currency presumably would begin its life extremely weak, and that would that would happen. And I see it in a similar way to the Asian financial crisis of the late '90s, mm. where mm. The, the currencies were pegged to the US dollar, but not actually mm. formed as part of a union as we've mm. seen in the euro. So. What we saw there as a model was the economies did badly and that caused the pegs to go. And then 
we saw this period of 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 a complete collapse in the currency, which mm. made it unbelievably valuable to go and invest in com country in, in companies there and yep. and to visit of course you could there were stories yep. of 10 10 pounds in thailand would have lasted you like for two weeks um and and then then it all settles down and it all recovers and look at asia now it's a powerhouse yeah so this is yeah, no, i'm not no, saying no, Germ I, i'm not saying no, no, greece would go to that extent i, I but fully it, agree with you of course yeah that's the way to go that's the way to do it but yeah that's not the situation that we have today in the peripheral countries of the Eurozone. The, the situation that we have there is that um, people are being used to being subsidized out of Brussels. Yeah. Uh, the political leadership of those countries, they, I mean, in, in Asia, 1997, uh, you had Thailand, Indonesia, and so on. The leadership of those countries, they had no places uh, elsewhere to go. They were stuck with their, their own country. Yeah. Okay, so they were dependent on getting the country back on the rails. Uh, but now the political elites in Portugal, in, in Spain, Greece, uh, and where have you, uh, Bratislava and uh, so, so Slovakia and Romania and so on, I mean, their main careers are not within their own countries and uh, within the apparatus of uh, the European Union. So they want to go to Brussels. They want to have uh, jobs uh, created by the European Union, Leveragely uh, funded to paid under with, with the same remuneration as uh, similar jobs in Germany and so on, uh, but then in their own countries. So that's what they want. Their uh, loyalty are not to their own country; they are increasingly to this international organization. Is that why you do you think? I mean, what do you think of the Brexit process from your perspective? Do you think that's why it's been so difficult to put it into effect? Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly so. I mean, the uh, uh, among the, the elites. Um, in, in all our countries, well, they have grown uh, together much faster, much uh, earlier than, than the rest of the population. Right? And so therefore, for, for them, it's, it's already a reality that should never go away. Um, and they, they would like, uh, like to keep it this way. Right? So I understand this. I understand this. As a, as, a, as a German person working in France, what do, you, do you think, what do you think of the Brexit process to the extent that do you think we'll ever leave? I'll tell you something funny. Uh, the day when Brexit was voted, right? So I was in a, I was uh, in Paris for uh, because the, the French army had uh, hired me as a as a member of a recruiting committee for uh, future officers. Okay, okay. <laughs> quite funny. I, I spare you the details. Okay, so <laughs> the so the morning after the Brexit vote, I come to the breakfast room. So there's this general, and he is happy, and I am happy. <laughs> We're both happy that Brexit has been voted. He is happy because the Brits are out because he didn't like the Brits. And I'm happy because I'm, uh, I'm happy for the Brits uh, because uh, for me, this is the right, the right way to go. It's, it's good to be independent. It's good to be responsible. And it, I was also happy for the European continent because it will force the European continent so that the Eurozone and not only the European Union in general to be a much behave much more responsibly. Mm. So uh, competition is always good uh, in, in these things. We had a we had an, a UK economist John Hearn on um, probably a year ago now, and he says uh, um, this 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 isn't as funny now as it was then. And he said uh, his his perennial nightmare is that in ten years' time we'll still be negotiating to leave, and everyone else will already have gone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 really painful to see this. It must be 
of talking to British friends uh, yesterday and they said, oh yeah, I mean, we, we feel so sorry. I mean, we, we are the, the clowns of the world right now. Uh, uh, the running joke. I said, well, I mean, I have great sympathy with, with me. I mean, I come from Germany. What, what do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> it, it reminds me of a phrase I heard during the, the first dot-com boom, so around 99 or 2000, which is uh, the pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the land. So in this in this context, Britain is actually being a bit of a pioneer. Yeah, it's it's, it's really. I mean, uh, in the case of all smaller countries, where they are, uh, it was much easier uh, to control the political process. It's much more difficult for somebody from outside to do this in Britain, right? So, uh, but now it's there. Uh, the, the result is there, and I think uh, I still think Brexit will happen. Mm. It's just not the same timetable. Well, probably you need to have another general election and just vote all the resistors out of the uh, out of parliament, and then you you will get it. But you will get there, and that's a good thing. Moving to gold, what's your what's your? I'm, I'm guessing your view on gold is you think it's something that should be owned because of the basement of currencies. But but I'd like to like to hear what you think of it at this point in time. Well, I mean, uh, I started thinking about gold from a monetary point of view. And of course, gold would be much better money than fiat money that we use today. But I've come to the conclusion that, uh, as many other people before, uh, that gold is not actually the, the best money that there is. Probably something of the best money would be something like silver. So I think uh, precious metals probably are the best money. So, so I'm not a Bitcoin uh, advocate and so on. I like experiments like Bitcoin because they're free market experiences. There's a great uh, deal of thinking that goes into this great creativity. And what I like uh, about it as a, uh, as a professor is that it gets people to think about economic mechanisms, about economic concepts and so on. So this is all great about Bitcoin, but still I don't think that Bitcoin would be good money. Uh, so I think the, 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 the traditional monies that we had in the past, gold, silver, are still the best ones. Sorry, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you. So, so as a non-economist, I'm... I'm thinking that the, the classical definition of a money or, or characteristics of money is that it's a unit of account, a medium of exchange, and a store of value. When you say Bitcoin isn't necessarily going to be a good money, which of any or all of those are you referring to? Because I'm, assume, I'm assuming you're, you're, you're coming from the store of value uh, purchasing power perspective, but I may be wrong. Well, for me, the, the unit of account uh, function is, is a derived one. So you have these three functions that you find in the textbooks, right? The three main functions are uh, store of value, uh, unit of account, and medium of exchange, okay? And the, the essential function of money is to serve as a medium of exchange. Mm. So, in my, so that's my point of view, right? So we have uh, this, uh, this is the essence of money to be a generally used uh, medium of exchange. But without, but without coercion. Exactly. Well, I mean, it holds true even for those monies that are being imposed, right, mm. in one way or another. Right. So it, it's the generally used medium of exchange. Okay. And then as a consequence, you calculate in terms of that money, unless there's very strong inflation or something like this, right? Then uh, you need to calculate other uh, different ways. Uh, but the foundation is, of course, indeed uh, to serve as a store of value. And here, indeed, we have problems with Bitcoin because Bitcoin only serves uh, as um, medium of exchange or as a store of value. For, so it's, it's, right now, it's a speculative object and, and so on. Um, but it has no other function, whereas uh, precious metals have multiple uh, alternative uses, not only jewelry, but they are uh, 
very numerous industrial uses because of the particular very special uh, physical characteristics of, of these metals. So that means that in the case of gold and silver, you always have a fallback position and there's always an additional demand, an industrial demand or non-monetary demand that serves as a buffer to uh, salvage uh, the, uh, uh, these metals uh, if ever their monetary use is put into question and so on. Uh, Bitcoin is much more fragile on that end because it has no natural um, uh, non-monetary use. So I think Bitcoins have come into circulation and uh, can be kept there uh, thanks to the uh, ideological, now, not in a negative sense, right, but just... Uh, it's a libertarian type argument. Exactly. Right? So you need to have people of the commitment who are ready to absorb the losses that come with a fall in the value of Bitcoins. Uh, some, if, if everybody just sells, because the price is going down, well, Bitcoins will be driven completely out of the market. Mm. So for this not to happen, you need to have people who are committed to Bitcoin. So we don't consider it merely as an, a monetary or financial instrument. Now, in the case of gold and silver, you don't need this. Right? You, because gold and silver have always other uses and uh, people who are uh, uh, active in jewelry or uh, who use gold and silver in cell phones or in, in aerospace and, and, and however, they will be happy if prices go down. Right? So uh, you don't need that sort of uh, emotional, intellectual commitment to these. Uh, so therefore, they, they are more robust than Bitcoins. That, that's my point. To reinforce that point, as someone who's just had the catalytic converter stolen from my car because of the, the epidemic of thefts that are going on at the moment. Oh my goodness. Yeah, uh, yeah it, this is a big problem, apparently, in, well, it's a big problem for you. Paul. It's a big problem for me, but it's, <laughs> apparently it's been a big problem. It's, there's an epidemic going on. Catholics are converted. Yes, in France as well. Yes. You know what? Oh, somebody three. stole a piece from my car three three months ago. I was right. just shocked. I've never seen, seen something like this. Yes, it's unbelievable. So um, I think this is this could be a conspiracy to drive us towards electric cars. But but in any case, it's yeah. it's happening. So you're absolutely right. But I, I was very interested in your. I'm personally your... thinking of getting a sedan chair carried by Greta Thunberg, but that's just me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but uh, I was interested in your your comment that you said you think silver is is possibly better than gold with regard to. Uh, and uh, why is that? The the, pur the purchasing power of gold has always been so high uh, per volume uh, per day that it could only be used for very uh, large-scale transactions. I mean, uh, starting with the uh, men's suit, maybe, okay, but then uh, uh, buying things like vehicles, buildings, and so on, so uh, rather large objects. It has never been really a medium of exchange in daily transactions. Daily transactions was always silver, or some alloy of silver, or some uh, or bronze, or something like this, of this sort, okay? And that's actually a good thing. It's, it's good that people, um, uh, actually own, personally control the money of the country. Um, Ludwig von Mises, is, uh, we, we talked about the Austrian school before, and Mises, the economist that I admire most, uh, at the end of his career, it was precisely this consideration that he stressed uh, a lot. And he said, well, uh, in a sound monetary system, it's the people themselves, each, all individual market participants who personally control a part of the money supply. Right? So they own, they have the money in their pockets or in, at home and, and so on. So that's truly democratic, popular uh, control of, of this uh, crucial social institution. And silver allows that. Uh, if you impose gold on, um, uh, on the economy and 
that is exactly what has happened in the uh, last quarter of the 19th century, right? When silver was demonetized, was a political movement, was a top-down movement, and gold was imposed as a money on the on the economy, then you automatically get a shot in the arm of banking because you cannot use gold in daily transactions. That is, you need to have some um, uh, money substitutes that can take the place of, of gold, but in, in smaller denominations in daily exchanges. So that's why banking has uh, become so uh, strong and has developed so strongly in the, the, the last decades of the 19th century and of course all through the 20th century. Now, but let me close this and, and get to, um, uh, to to the gold question. Uh, gold, um, uh, so I started thinking about gold as, as a monetary instrument, but I've come to the conclusion that gold is actually very uh, important in a free society and a free economy uh, as a store of value indeed as a natural way of saving for uh, especially for people who don't know the first thing about financial markets and of financial techniques and uh, uh, risk management and what have you a very straightforward and simple way to save some of your revenue to, to put some money aside for your old age and so on is just to uh, to stock um, uh, gold coins, and that's what people have been doing for for many centuries. And I think the the reason why central banks are so adamant in um, uh, controlling the gold price and preventing that the gold price, in a foreseeable way, goes up, which would happen in a, in a natural free market, is that um, precisely gold is the main competitor, not necessarily as money for fiat money, but it's the natural competitor for financial markets. Couldn't you just back? I mean, obviously, when we couldn't go to a situation where we're we're holding gold coins and paying for things with gold and silver, the physical mm. metal again. I guess that's never going to happen. But we could have money that's backed by gold or silver, and therefore, it we could make small transactions because it's just a denomination of of a you know percentage of a gold bar. So, in other words, you know, when Bitcoin first started out, it was worth mere sense it was just a tiny value now you have to trade a very fraction of a bitcoin in order to for it to mean anything in in in, in real money you can't send somebody yeah. one bitcoin because yeah. it's too big yeah yeah, yeah. it's true uh, this would be very very simple to do right i mean this is, yeah yeah it, that's not difficult at all and we have already all the elements in place right now right you, you have uh, several institutions that offer gold uh, backed accounts so, like, so you could have a gold standard of this sort very easily. Is there a danger that if if one country decided to adopt this, uh, backing their currency with gold, that they would not be able to expand their? I mean, it's it's a slippery slope. This question, mm -hmm. but it would mm -hmm. they they could then be tempted to undo this if they started to underperform on the global stage. In other words, if everybody else is debasing their currencies and moving forward, and you're trying to do the right thing, yet you're mm. struggling, this would be mm. a very difficult situation to, to it'd be, it'd almost be untenable. Well, I mean, um, the, the difficulty, I don't see the difficulty there. Uh, the difficulty does not come from the fact that the others would be uh, performing better by debasing their, their own currencies, right? What, what they do is just to redistribute existing resources in favor of the politically well-connected to the detriment of the others. And the, the problem, I think, for uh, 
for this more generally, right? For a country that has a sounder, better money than other countries, right? Right now we've doing uh, for 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 ten years now we've uh, made great efforts to make sure that the Swiss franc, the British pound, the uh, the euro, and the American dollar are becoming more or less the same thing. Right? It's really uh, very few uh, changes, no, no many disruptions in the exchange rates, and, and so on. But let's say if you have uh, uh, known and foreseeable differences in the quality of money between different countries. So one country is more inflationary, the other is less inflationary. And, uh, what, what happens is that uh, promotes um, uh, exports of those countries that have a, a, a worse money because the, the residents of those countries, well, they want to reduce or to minimize their holdings of their own inflationary money as, as much as possible. Right. So they want to get a hold of a better money. This is what you see in all countries that are so dollarized, right? It's a phenomenon of dollarization. All of these countries have export surpluses. And the, that springs from the fact that they need to pay for the dollars that they really want to own. They don't want to own their own uh, local monkey money. They want to own better money, such as dollars. So in order, since nobody's giving them dollars, they need to buy them. So they export. So they have a structural export uh, surplus. And therefore, countries with a better money, they have a structural import surplus. Right? So the, the, the industry is, uh, in, in those countries are suffering under foreign competition precisely because uh, foreigners want to get some of the, the local money. That, that's the reason why the US, for example, has a structural import deficit. Right? Because many more, even though the dollar might be quite lousy as a money, especially as compared to gold, it's still better than most of the other monies that are around in the world. Right? So people want to buy money, uh, dollars, and they are, therefore they need export services to, to get those, those dollars from the US. And therefore also President Trump's policies that uh, try to reverse this trend just with um, uh, export and import controls with tariffs and so on, will not succeed uh, simply for this reason. You see, so the, the, the difficulty of such a country is not that the policy would not work, would not work, or is not for the country, it's that it creates pressure on the local producers. And so you get political resistance from that end. Fascinating. That's, that's brilliant. Just one final question before we go to media picks. If there was, uh, when you're talking about fair currencies, you're looking at the uh, a selection of the, 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 the least worst options compared to gold. What is the least worst currency that you can see? Um, would it be the Swiss franc? Would it be the Japanese yen? If, given that Japan has just come out of a deflationary um, situation. The or, Vietnamese dong. Um, what, 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 no, I'm serious. What, 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 is, there, is there any currencies? So if we, put, if we put gold and silver at the top of your shopping list, what, what, what appears below it? Uh, yeah, probably the Swiss franc. The Swiss franc. I mean, the, the main disadvantage of the Swiss franc is that Switzerland is so small. Right? I mean, it's, uh, that's a, it's a, such a small, it's not a, even an exit door, right? It's, it's, a, it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> not many people get through this, right? So Swiss franc is probably best. And the problem with the uh, Swiss is um, uh, at least, right? Because the Swiss, they still appreciate uh, stable money. They, appreciates uh, strong money. It's just some of the Swiss industrialists. They, they don't like it because they see that it creates pressure on them, on their, on their export business. Yes. But 
uh, the Swiss themselves they like it. Now in Japan, it's, it's a different story. It's, Japan has the advantage of a much bigger country, so it's a much bigger economy. But the Japanese, if I understand this correctly, and I don't know Japanese mentality at all, right? But from what I see portrayed here in our Western media is that they are adamant and desperate to create inflation. Now that's definitely not the case with Japan. Excuse me, with, with, with Switzerland. So yes. therefore, I would say because the, the uh, it's a more uh, uh, sane uh, intellectual environment, more moral environment, apparently, the, the, the Swiss franc seems to be better. The, the Swiss are doing what the Germans would have done had they not joined the, the Europe. Yes. Yeah, basically, yeah, that's yeah. the last bastion of, yeah. of, of of protecting your currency and doing the yes. right thing, not going yes. for inflation at all costs. Absolutely, that's absolutely yeah. fascinating, Guido. Thank you so much for your time. I know we're we're, we're, we're probably overrun on the, the amount of time we thought we was going to be. Just before we go, we'd love to get a media pick from you. Okay, let me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can give you one one thing that I read recently. Okay, so many things that I like. Uh, but as you've seen at the very beginning, when we talked about philosophy and so on, some of the stuff is rather abstruse, but this is really great and it's accessible for everybody. So I have this, um, I discovered uh, this, uh, through Austrian friends of mine, this uh, psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl. Oh, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. So you know, you're a cultivated person. I'm not, I yeah. don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> so so ask, ask Tim about it. Think of Victor Frankl, it's great. He has a great philosophy of it's, life. It's difficult reading the first half of the book. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm worried if Tim says it's difficult. I'm no, worried yeah, about... <laughs> no, yeah, well, don't read this book. Yes, it's this other book. It's an international uh, bestseller. It's uh, it? um, where he relates his experience in, uh, in the co uh, German concentration camps. Yeah, yeah, this okay. is the one. This is the one. This, this is the one, right? Yeah. Because at the beginning, it's not that difficult. It's just, I, I mean, uh, I mean, emotionally difficult. It's, oh, it's quite right. harrowing yes, reading. Yes, quite right. harrowing to read. Right. Yes, it is. It is. It's true. But then, so once you're through this, then the last quarter of the book, then he uh, presents a bit this um, intellectual digest out of this, right? What came out of this, and it's really a very positive, life-affirming. Uh, uh, surprising, ast astonishing, and, and comforting, uh, comforting uh, uh, view and, and philosophy is, is all view on, on the problem problem of suffering. Uh, and and what what I love most is is this way he said, well, we need to think of the meaning of life uh, in a Copernican turn. Right? We need to think the way we are thinking about this because. Uh, the way Buddhists would, would, would think of it and, and many other people is, well, we, you need to look inside, right? And look for the meaning of life in your own soul or in your belly or wherever, and then try to realize yourself, right? Go out and then transform the world according to the meaning that you find in yourself. And he says it's exactly the other way around. You need to look at the world around you and uh, see what challenges it poses to you. And that's where you will find the meaning. That's where you find the, the, the starting point for meaningful life. I, this is just astonishing. It's great. That's yeah, so interesting. Yeah. And if yeah. you don't mind, Tim, I, I will go segue into my one. I saw the limited Netflix documentary series about Bill Gates. And I have to say, it, it's absolutely... So I is that it, decoding Bill Gates? Uh, it no, it's uh, inside, Bill inside, the, inside the brain of okay. Bill Gates. Decoding the brain of Bill... Yeah, the, inside the brain of Bill Gates. And it's absolutely fascinating what he's been doing. I mean, if you if you imagine yourself with you know 100 billion, and you think, well, what what am I going to do? You know, he's left my Microsoft. He's not 
running it anymore. What, what do you do? And it's actually what he's been doing. He's looked at the world and, for example, he's, he said, right, there are children dying in Africa because they can't get clean water. I'm going to solve this problem. And he's, he writes to the universities in America, gets the greatest minds together, funds a few projects which are completely crazy. And last week we had on the podcast a guy called uh, Alan Steele who recommended a book called Loon Shots, which is about crazy ideas that can change the world. And this all ties in with what exactly what he was doing and what he's doing. And, and he's, he's solved the problem. He's created this sanitation system that is just completely revolutionary. And I don't want to spoil it for you, for other people who are going to watch it, but it, it's, it's exactly what you just said. He's gone out there, he's looked at problems, and he said, right, I'm going to use my money, I'm going to use my brain, and I'm going to fix it. And it's, it's changed my opinion of him completely. I have a, 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 a lot of respect for him now. But th that, this book also, I think, is, is, uh, is going to be one that I'm going to read because it's, um, it sounds like it's saying the same thing. So, Tim, what, what do you have? Well, firstly, I have to endorse Guido's selection because Man's Search for Meaning is the most inspiring book I've ever read. And it's extremely, uh, extremely uh, affecting in, in every sense of the word. Uh, so to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, <laughs> I'm going to go for, um, well, I'm going to go for two because there's a connection between them. Um, the first is Bohemian Rhapsody, which I saw uh, recently. Oh, you saw the film? The, yeah. The Freddie Mercury yeah. biopic, which is nothing really very special, but it's very entertaining. Yes. It's hugely crowd-pleasing entertainment. The critics hated it. The critics way. hated it. Which um, is why it's, it's great. It's, it's quite, it's eminently watchable. And for anyone of a certain age, um, I mean, Queen was just all over the 70s and yes. most of the 80s. Now, I never bought a Queen record, but but you have to admit, they they, they gave good rock. Oh, definitely. I, I was very lucky to go to all the early Queen concerts. Oh, really? Yeah. You, you are privileged. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, I would go to other gigs that my friends would talk about and I would say, God, this is this is rubbish, you know, because I'm my first few gigs, well, I used to go to the Marquee Club in London and see a lot of small bands, which were great. But my first stadium gig was a Queen gig. So I was like completely spoiled on the works tour. And when it came to Live Aid, I wasn't surprised. I was like, the other bands, States Quo were great and some other bands were great. But, you know, I had like Sade playing a bass line for 10 minutes before they actually got into their song. Along comes Queen and just like... Blows everyone else blows everyone, away. Blows everyone else away. And I, I, I knew that this is what they would do because I'd seen them before. The other, the other one is uh, uh, another Netflix production uh, called The Spy with oh. Sasha Baron Cohen. I don't know if you know the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, Guido. He, uh, yes. he did Borat and yes. uh, yeah. a few yeah. other things. But uh, this is, as far as I'm aware, his first serious acting role. Yeah. The reason I mention it, first, it's a very good film. It's a, a series. A, uh, I think it's a six-part series on Netflix. Very, very good. True life story of an um, Israeli uh, spy who infiltrated the, the the top level of the Syrian government. Quite an incredible true life story. Um, but but Sasha Baron Cohen is outstandingly good in this. And the reason I mentioned the connection is because I, I believe Sasha Baron Cohen was originally lined up to play Freddie Mercury. Yes, he was. Yes, he's. I think he's brilliant. The common thread here, because we've talked about this a bit in the past, is it seems easier, much easier for good comics to become good serious dramatic actors than I the other so. way around. I believe so. It's interesting. I, I mean, I, I think it's much harder to do what he's done in the past, you know, his comedic work, than 
and I, I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if his acting is absolutely outstanding. Um, but, um, but Guido, look, thank you so much for your time. I'm very happy that there's another Netflix film that I like very much. Uh, it was about a, a, a documentary on Freddie Mercury. Mercury. Yeah. Also Netflix. And there's, there's a, a something in it that I understood for the first time. Because, okay, I like uh, Queen's music, but on the other hand, um, I, I didn't like the whole, but I don't like the milieu, right, of, of, of musicians and so on and, uh, and the lifestyle and so on. So it was kind of suspect. But what I understood well, as long as as long as you've got the sex and the drugs, who needs the rock and roll? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, definitely. So what I really what impressed me so much was it came out that he was such a good person. Yeah, yeah. he was a lovable person. He was good to others. He was uh, uh, just a positive influence on all others around him. And uh, this reminded me of another film, the uh, documentary I've seen many years before about Elvis. Right, Elvis Presley. Yes, yes, he it's was the, the same, same thing. Yes. I mean, it's not just the music. It's, there's something about the person. Uh, there's this warmth that it, it radiates. Uh, uh, as goodwill, exactly yeah. on all others around him. People loved him not just because of music, but because of the person. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very important lesson there as well. Right. So if you uh, if you want to lead people. Uh, well, you, you should maybe start with yourself, turn yourself into a better person, right? Mm. If you want to exercise a good influence on others around you. Absolutely. It's not something that we see much in politics. No, indeed. Quite the reverse. But Guido, I'm sure our listeners would want to get in touch with you. If How do people reach you? What's the best? Are you on Twitter or via No, 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 no. No, I mean... I, I mentioned Netflix, but I don't even have Netflix, right? So I, I watched Netflix last year when I was on a sabbatical in the US. Uh-huh. Uh, at home, we don't have TV. Uh, we don't have Twitter. We don't have Facebook. I think my girls, we have grown-up girls, so they have Facebook, but they, even they, they don't use it anymore. So really? we are very low tech now. How do you do, yeah. how do you even you found, that? I think you how, found the perfect balance there. How yeah. have you done that, Guido? That's incredible. No, but I can afford this, right? I mean, you guys, you need to be stay connected with the, the real world around you, but I'm an academic, so I can remain yes. in my average hour and so on. But I mean, with your, I'm, I mean, with your family, though, I mean, like, I mean, I've, I've got two young kids and, and try to keep them away from social media is a real oh, you fight. Should. Yeah, yeah, it's a real fight. It's a real fight. Yeah, yeah. No, just take them away from us. Put them into whatever, uh, sports, uh, if you're, you're a boys, and then or music or whatever. Just keep them away from all this nonsense as yeah. long as possible. Yes, yeah. um, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, but yeah. so so would it be could, could uh, best would be email just to write right to my uh, right to my email. You, you have a website, don't you? you have um... yes, I do. Yeah, so you, there's contact information there. Right? It's just guidohaltzman.com. Okay, so we'll share links to that in the show notes. Um, all right, Guido. I just want to say a really big thank you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. So I'm interesting. Guido, a very, a very great pleasure to reconnect after all these years. Yes, that's a zoo. I hope we, we can meet in person. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. If you ever come to London, yeah. just please let us know. We'll, we'll yeah, I actually we'll... might come to London at the end of um, end of November. Brilliant. So, uh, we'll be in touch. We'll be, Excellent. We'll catch up. Thanks very much indeed, Guido. Take Appreciate care. it. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye now. Bye. That was fascinating. Absolutely loved it. Um, so interesting. Really, really interesting. Um, just before we came on air, you were mentioning the House of Commons. Yeah, the uh, we, I think we must have been watching this. Uh, I forget the channels now because it, it was either the BBC News Channel or BBC Parliament, and possibly both, because we ended up switching off at about ten o'clock in the evening, and we started watching 
roughly lunchtime. And I, I, I tuned in to, to catch Boris's statement returning from New York after the the Supreme Court ruling. And actually, it was the most one of the most entertaining afternoons of my, evenings of my life. <laughs> so for anyone that hasn't seen it, you must watch, if, if, if not the full show, then at least the highlights of Jeffrey Cox, the Attorney General, because it was absolutely a, a pièce... A pièce du théâtre, a pièce de résistance, um, unbelievably uh, full-blown, uh, the, the whole works. I mean, the guy's got a, this, this sort of amazing, roaring baritone anyway, but he, he just he just blew blew the opposition away. I think there were, there were heavy expectations coming into yesterday, because uh, we're recording this on Thursday, the 26th of September. So um, it's the, the, a few days, just a few days after the Supreme Court ruling that, invalidated the proroguing of parliament and there's an expectation coming into the commons that you know that they were going to duff up the attorney general and follow up by duffing up boris and my yes. god did those expectations get reversed very very quickly so first the jeffrey coxing is just fantastic and hilarious and then you have you know the man himself so boris came in and basically just gave no quarter um and there's a very, uh, I appreciate what Guido just, just said about social media. He's absolutely right. But if you do have the, uh, the psychology to engage with, with, say, Twitter, there is a very special pleasure that can come with engaging with Twitter while simultaneously watching a, a big event. Yes. And the, the parliamentary session was a big event. So it's almost that's that's what it's designed. For, almost all, right? oh, yeah. It's become be, be, be a sort of mixture of theatre, Grand Guignol, black comedy. I don't know how to describe it. I'll be I'll be looking up Grand Grand Guignol. What does that that's mean? Fine. I couldn't tell you. I just I just thought it didn't sound impressive. Um, but the uh, macabre is how I've always interpreted it. But I don't, I don't really know the, the full definition. Baroque, possibly. Um, I'm just throwing out mindless French words now. I don't know what's I don't know what's happening. I've been taken over by spirit of madness. But Boris launches that it, it, there was no contrition no apology it was je ne regret rien to the power of infinity and uh, during during the proceedings uh, basically he's worked out perfectly how to be the world's most successful troll on the back of perhaps the success of donald trump so uh, he started using the phrase surrender bill uh about the the hillary ben act which is basically means that we can't we can't leave without a deal and every time he used the term surrender bill, the opposition benches would just get would just get more and more angry. So of course you would then continue to use the phrase surrender bill. Is that why you've changed your Twitter handle? So I've changed my Twitter handle to surrender bill, cousin of surrender bill. <laughs> but but last night I, I was just having the, the funniest time of it, and then I thought, okay, let's really go for it. So then I said, could everybody please stop using the word surrender bill? Hashtag surrender bill, and then I think followed up with. The first rule of surrender bill is do not mention, do not talk about oh, surrender no. bill. The what? second rule of surrender bill is do not talk about surrender bill. And those have been my most popular tweets ever. Fantastic. So everyone Fantastic. just piled in and it was extraordinarily funny. Oh, that must have been so much fun. But on on a, on a slightly more sobering note, yeah. the, the one thing that, that also came about last night was, I think it was Barry Sherman and some woman who, whose name I don't even want to remember from the Labour Party. The amount of hostility, rage, blind rage, real hateful rage that came back at Boris is, it was a sight to believe. And for what it's with, I mean, I'm clearly on one side of this debate, I'm on the, the pro-Brexit side, but it struck me that 
I think Labour and the Lib Dems have called the public mood 100% wrong on this. Mm. So when they're saying, oh, no, the language is intemperate and immoderate and all the rest of it, I think they're, no, because what Boris was doing yesterday was he was giving a, you like a sort of a, 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 a channel of venting for those of us, those 17.4 million people who've basically felt completely cheesed off for the last three and a bit years. And he's actually now a lightning rod for the for the opposition, but an opportunity for those those not a trivial number of people who frankly have felt cheated and betrayed. And he's he's now he's now taken the taken the, the fight to Parliament in no small way. I know anything can happen, but what do you th- what do you think the next steps are? I I, I couldn't even begin to to say because I mean I'm I'm no expert in uh, parliamentary procedure or anything else. But but, but apparently n- neither is anybody else. Yes. So they're just writing the laws now as they as they go on. So. I saw a headline saying that Boris had lied to the Queen or something. Is that no? What's that I think I, 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 these these terms are very nuanced. So I, I'm again stress I'm no expert. I, my take on it is that uh, Boris had perfectly sound advice, perfectly credible advice from his legal people, including the Attorney General, to do what he did in yeah. relation to the, you know, the the mechanics of sort of basically sort of uh, dismissing Parliament and then reinstating it for the later date. Um, and that was all deemed to be sufficiently legal for him to go ahead and meet the Queen. And then the Supreme Court, bear in mind that also a number of very high profile local British uh, justice people also approved it. And then the Supreme Court, eleven to nothing, decided that it was it was technically uh, unlawful. But I think, as Boris himself said, what's really happened is that the legal system has been brought in uh, to opine on things. It has no matter talking about it. It has nothing to do with you know politics. This is the last thing you really want to happen in terms of the UK, the British Constitution. It is not for the courts to decide what parliamentary procedure ought to be like. Uh, it's it's none of their business, and you know because we've got hundreds and hundreds of years of precedent to draw upon, and people are now that the, it's exactly what Guido was just talking about in relation to the elites. You know when the elites are cornered, they will do absolutely anything to you know to to, to ensure that they win. Well, I think in this case, this is a, this is a classic example of a battle royale where neither side's backing down. But the difference is, you know, that there was a simple majority for leave. And that simple majority, uh, a total of 17 and a half million people have been ignored for the last three years. So no surprise that they're angry, that I'm angry. Uh, and so there's a phrase that I think John Lanchester used it in one of his pieces a while back, a guy who writes for the London Review of Books, about somebody going to, quote, ridiculous Basil Fawlty-ish lengths, unquote, to achieve something. And that's what the Remain camp have done. So they're driving a coach and horses through historical precedent, through law, through normal parliamentary life, through everything, just to overturn a, a, a perfectly legitimate vote. It's quite sickening, really. I, I have some, I know some people who are Remainers, and I get, I detect that they are starting to get weary with it as well. You know, not, 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 I mean, with, a, not basis, with their view. On but the basis of what happened in Parliament yesterday, you get a sense this is really coming over to absolute know fever pitch boiling level now this 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 sort of pace can't be sustained it's just too intense yeah but yeah. If, if we're not careful someone's gonna get killed well yeah. uh, and i say that in, in all sincerity i don't i don't mean it to happen i don't want it to happen but if trust me when you see the footage of certain labor mps just that just blind with fury just lashing out at boris it's deeply unsettling wow 
it, we can still get that, can we? Is it uh, on check YouTube? it out on YouTube. I might yeah. find some this morning. Uh, on to more uh, happier topics. Um, I just want to say a couple of shout outs. First of all, to Dixie DeVille on YouTube. Thank you for your lovely comments. Um, we really appreciate them. And Andrew Smith on Twitter. And Hamish Capital, thank you uh, for your comments too. And always, as always, um, Stuart Button and uh, David Harrison. We really do appreciate all your support and um, appreciate the fact that you're, you know, you, you've expressed that. So thank you for all the likes and subscribes and, and the, the comments that you've put on iTunes and everywhere else. We really do appreciate it. And thank you, Tim, for everything today. Hashtag surrender, Bill. <laughs> and until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.